Hi, and welcome to Quest, a vineyard church where we strive to live life as friends with faith through knowing God, loving others, and making a difference. If you're new, there will be information at the end of this podcast to help you plug in at Quest both in person and online. Now, let's dive into this week's teaching. So today we start part three of our Like Jesus series, and I'm going to start to get in again today with some questions for you, and you can hoot and holler and grunt your answers however you want to today. So here's the first question. If you had to choose between a top-of-the-line uh, sleep number bed and a box frame to sleep on, which one would you choose, a top-of-the-line sleep number bed or a box spring? Okay, okay, okay. I love my sleep number bed. It's the best, softest bed I've ever had. If you could choose between wearing your favorite pair of comfy shoes and wooden clogs. Okay, okay, okay. Here's a more, here's a harder one. If you could choose between an all expenses Christmas trip to the North Pole or a high end resort in Hawaii, which one would you choose? I just ask such tough questions sometimes, don't I? The common denominator for this today, though, is what? It's all about comfort. We place a really high value on comfort. I mean, if I had it my way, I'd go out and buy those, you know, those really, really thick, 100% cotton, nice brown flannel shirts with the most comfortable soft jeans and the most comfortable shoes, and that's what you would see me in all winter long. Okay. Maybe it's left over from the Oregon days. I don't know. There's a lot of money in selling comfort, isn't there? right? We sell soft blankets. We sell memory, memory foam to make our bed softer. We, we sell Lazy Boy recliners. We sell our $4 hot comfort drinks at coffee shops. We sell our $5,000 massage chairs. How many want one of those? Those are awesome. But loving comfort can also spell danger for us, can it? And not just danger of putting on a few pounds, right? We as humans often get to uh, pursue comfort to the detriment even in our jobs, our relationships, our, our faith in it. And it comes with horrible consequences sometimes. If we pursue comfort in relation to our job, it often leads to us missing opportunities that we need to seize to change in order to stay relevant and profitable. If we, if we pursue comfort in our relationships, we often choose status quo. And our relationships end up being less than they should be in love and and the depth of friendship. And if we choose comfort in our faith, it often leads to a very self-centered religion and a passionless purpose in life. We've just talked about in this series how Jesus doesn't require that we believe correctly or even require that we are morally sound to begin to follow him. But he does require a commitment not to just like him, but to learn to become like him. And inevitably, if we choose that choice to become like him, for all of us at some point, it will indeed cost us something. In fact, if your commitment to follow Jesus hasn't cost you something, then you're most likely not following Jesus. You may like Jesus, but you're not following him to become like him. See, as Americans, what we look for in entertainment and and in life in general, like through our movies, is we love strength and bravery, right? We love perseverance, whether it's in love or it's the pursuit of a dream or whether it's the pursuit of a win in the final four or it's a pursuit of justice or war. Acts of bravery and strength inspire us, right? 
And we love sports for the same reason, like especially this time of year, if you watch the top 10 that plays on ESPN daily, it almost always includes at least two posterizing dunks of people because we love toughness. We love the collision of forces. We love the sheer power of accomplishment. And we love watching those things from our comfortable couches and sofas wrapped up in a nice warm blanket with our nice hot cup of warm latte or in my case hot chocolate and the snacks that have been prepared for us, right? We pursue comfort. But comfort often leaves us as passive observers in life. And Jesus actually talks about an active cost that we need to be willing to pay, that we need to pay in order to be his disciples. He talks about it in many places. We're going to look at Mark 8 says this, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. I mean, what good is it for someone to gain the whole world yet forfeit their soul? Or, or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? If anyone is ashamed of me, ashamed of being like me, and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's Father's glory with the holy angels. Those are really strong words, aren't they? What do we do with that as Americans? I mean, I, I think we tend to seek to make even the idea of taking up our cross comfortable. We like our comfy crosses. We treat this idea with kind of almost flippant-like phrases. We all have our crosses to bear, we say, right? So just buck up and move on. What you're dealing with isn't that big. And we even have a funny thing about the way we use that phrase. We, we use it about even the most menial things, like our tire blows out and ruins your schedule for the day. Well, we all have our crosses to the bear. I, you know, you, you get back, you're running back to your car after getting your favorite morning drink and, and, and you're running late for work and you spill it on the ground and so you, you miss your morning coffee fix and you're grumpy and you're telling your office mate about it and what, they, what do they say? Well, we all have our crosses to bear, right? And we say it with a big grin and with a chuckle. We've also made crosses into beautiful decorations in our churches and on our shirts and the jewelry worn around our neck, and we end up with a comfortable cross. But what else are we supposed to really do with this symbol, in a sense, of our faith? I mean, the cross, if we're honest, is a tough sell. It's bad enough that Jesus had to die on the cross. Why did Jesus have to go and insist that we all have to take up our crosses? And notice the text doesn't say you just have to be willing to take up the cross. It says, notice, it says you have to be willing, you have to take it up, right? It says you don't, if you don't take up your cross, you can't be like me and you aren't really my follower and I won't acknowledge you at the end of time. I mean, Take up your cross. It's a really easy sell, right? I mean, we should be able to go out and say that to get lots of people out on the streets to say, well, gee, that sounds cool. I want to do that, so sign me up to be a follower of Jesus, right? I mean, think about it. If we this morning were worshiping in this building and we were actually back years ago in the first couple years right after Jesus died, And some local Jews and Greeks and Romans walked into our church building right now and saw this cross hanging on the ceiling. They would have thought that we were kind of insane. In fact, actually, it would be worse than insane. They would probably be thinking, you guys are some horribly demented, mentally sick psychos, is what they would have been thinking. Because the cross 
was a symbol of torture, of death, of weakness. It was a, it was a symbol of the fate of the most horrible criminals and the worst kind of punishment ever. So if you're going to wear a nice cross necklace, you might as well get a necklace with an electric chair on it or a guillotine pendant on that nice gold or silver chain you wear around your neck as well. See, for the Jews, the Romans, and the Greeks, the cross meant weakness. It meant a horrible death. And that, that's a little bit of kind of the idea of what Paul teaches later in 1 Corinthians 1. He says this. He says, For Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel, not with wisdom and eloquence. I, I read that oftentimes, and I ask the question, how, how bad of a preacher was Paul really based upon that comment? And, and yet God used him tremendously. He goes on to say, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to those who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. So let's try to examine what this command of Jesus, if we want to be his follower, to carry his cross really looks like. And we're going to try to ask ask uh, two questions of the text uh, of, of Jesus' patterns and what he teaches. What, what does it look like for you and I to carry our cross? And we're going to try to explore that in some practical ways. And, and then there's also this idea, though, that with a cost, there's also a benefit. So what is the benefit of this choice to follow Jesus? So the first question, what does it look like practically for us to carry our cross? Well, briefly, let me tell you what it does not mean. What it does not mean is it does not mean sickness and natural disaster are us carrying our cross for Jesus. The biblical worldview says that sickness and natural disaster are a result of our sin breaking the cosmos, not God's activity, not even God's design. Now, carrying our cross might be learning to live with faith in God's goodness and persevering even in the midst of a sin-broken cosmos and all the pain that goes along with that. But the brokenness itself, the sin and death, is not carrying our cross. God does not give sickness as a cross for us to bear. So let's move past that. What would be some maybe other practical ways to think about what this looks like for us today? And I think one of the ways is first, carrying our cross often involves the pain and the cost of swimming against the tide of culture. And while this is not as easily evident in post-Christian America where we still have remnants of Christian thought and we still have a, a measure of freedom of religion, this was very, very evident for the early church. If you were a Jew who decided to follow Jesus and you, you were excommunicated from the Jewish faith, you were uh, subject to discriminatory boycotts, you were even very likely going to be kicked out of your ha family home and be forced to move in an era when nobody, almost nobody actually left their family home and moved. For the Gentiles, the Greeks and the Romans, uh, the world, it often meant something similar. And we see this clearly even in excavations and what they're studying in, in places like Prien, Turkey today, which in the, in the back in the early church days, it was a medium-sized important port city with a huge trading district called an agora. 
So this Agora was something similar to a big outdoor mall, uh, a flea market kind of with hundreds and hundreds of traders. And if you were a Christian trader and you walked up there and you wanted to bring your goods and wares to sell there, you would walk in and be immediately met by the leader of the Agora who would welcome you saying, welcome. And then they would immediately tell you, now, in order to sell here, you need to offer incense to the gods of our city or gods of our market. And as a Christian, you couldn't do that because you had committed to serve the one and only true God and not have any other gods or worship any other gods. But if you didn't offer incense to the gods of the market, you couldn't sell there. In fact, it even was worse than that in many situations. The people of the area would be angered by you because they would be fearful that you, by your actions of not offering incense, are angering their gods and thereby going to bring bad fortune upon them as well. For similar reasons in that day, you lost all political voice and power as well. So the early church is this very powerful church in reaching people and growing, and it did so from a position of being significantly disadvantaged from paying the cost of lost economic and political influence. That was part of carrying the cross and identifying with Jesus Let's ask the question more current for us today. What are the areas in which we are automatically countercultural if we are disciples of Jesus? Now, certainly there would probably be a number of moral issues that, that we would be countercultural on, but, but, and, and we should focus on them. But, but when we make those the primary areas where we carry our cross, uh, we easily fall into coming across as morally superior or risk being labeled as moral bigots by others. And we miss what we highlighted a couple weeks ago and last week, that, that Jesus is a friend of sinners. Moral deficiencies, corrupt character, unhealthy, addictive behaviors did not keep Jesus or his disciples from relating as friends to people around them. So let's move beyond that and ask ourselves the question again. What are ways our faith automatically makes us swim against the culture of our day if we are truly disciples, cross-carrying disciples of Jesus? Allow me to suggest a few. I'm sure there's many more. A number of weeks ago after a service, uh, someone came to me and said, Ross, I don't know what it is about me or our community that it's so hard for me and people of our community to admit need and ask for prayer and pray for others. And then she went on to tell me how about six months ago this person took a, took a big risk and they decided, well, I'm not going to ask for prayer, but I'm going to actually get up and go pray for somebody who asked for prayer for healing. And as they were praying for this person for healing, the person they were praying for wasn't healed, but they actually were physically healed when they weren't even asking for it while they were praying for this other person. And then again, they went on and reinforced this idea of why is it so hard for me, for us, to open up and be real and pray with one another. Why is that? Why is that? See, in a world where image and accomplishment are everything, the weakness of the cross, the weakness of being vulnerable and real about our sin, about our need, about our failings is threatening. We think in our world, never let people see you weak. Don't ever let people see the bad parts of you. We see that even in interviewing for jobs, right? How many of you have ever been asked in an interview that famed question, what are your weaknesses? Do you answer that question? 
No, see, we're always coached to answer that question something like this, saying, well, I'm naturally controlling, but I've learned to listen and seek feedback and intentionally defer when possible to other people so that the strength of the team can be built. We always turn a weakness into a strength. Why? Because weakness is bad. So we always have to spin it. We always have to look good to cover up real weak stuff. We keep that family secret hidden. It's a part of life. It's a part of the American culture of success. Carrying our cross invites us to open admission of our weakness, of our sin, of our humility. When culture says, says, shape your image, don't admit that mistake or that sin, Jesus says, don't be afraid of weakness and don't hide sin. James, Jesus' earthly brother, uh, writes what he learned from Jesus on this. And he writes it in a familiar verse in James 5. He says, therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. See, the cross invites us to a humility so that we can be healed. But we can't be healed unless we surrender to the one who has the power to do so. And, and it says the way we encounter that power of God is by being honest in our weakness with each other and praying together, allowing God's presence to come into that place of weakness in that moment with us and bring healing and safety and love and wholeness to us. See, this is such an amazing scripture because Jesus says, confess your sins and pray. And the prayer of a righteous person is powerful. So we've got this sin person and we've got this righteous person. And the amazing thing is the two of those contradictions come together in the cross for us. Jesus on the cross paid for our sins and gives us right standing. So even while we are still in our process of allowing God to remove sin from our lives, we are righteous at that very moment and have that power of that righteous prayer to be with us. So the question is, why do we allow our sin and our weakness to make us hide when all the reason for hiding has been washed away and taken away in the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. We are already forgiven. Why do we hold on to our shame by hiding it rather than shedding it? See, I think it's because we're still trying to save ourselves. We're still trying to be powerful in our own selves. Paul, a few verses later in 1 Corinthians 1, says this. He says, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. God chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things, the things that are not, to nullify the things that are so that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. That is our righteousness, holiness, and redemption. Therefore, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, the cross makes it safe to admit our weakness. And Jesus invites us to carry our cross as an open admission of our weakness and our sin and at the same time a boast in his loving, forgiving, accepting, healing power. Carrying our cross is countercultural 
and it is the way that healing comes. But it's not just swimming upstream against the culture's values. It's also swimming swimming upstream against humanity's natural way in which we approach religion. Remember Matthew, one of Jesus' disciples, one of the Capernaum Five we talked about a couple weeks ago. He was a wealthy man when Jesus called him to follow him. And much of it was gained through thievery that was a corrupt part of the taxation system of the day. But that makes Matthew's record of an interaction between Jesus and another really good rich man even more fascinating. In fact, we see the story of the rich man both in Matthew and Mark and Luke. All three talk about this story. And the account goes like this. It says, one day there was this rich man who came to Jesus asking, teacher, what must I do to get eternal life? And the interaction, as the interaction goes along, Jesus says, well, well, you need to love God only, him alone, and love your neighbor as yourself and keep all the other commandments in the Bible. And the man says to Jesus, Jesus, I've kept all of these. And then Mark, writing on behalf of Peter, adds one really interesting detail. He says, and Jesus looked at him and loved him. So this rich guy saying he kept all the commandments isn't just kind of some haughty, overblown, ego, pride type of a guy. I mean, sure, maybe he's unaware of the ways, some of the ways he, I'm sure he's unaware of many of the ways he's violated the commands, but he's genuine in what he's saying. And the text says that Jesus loved that genuineness about him. And then Jesus said to him, one thing you still lack, go and sell all you have and give it to the poor. In a sense, Jesus is saying, take up your cross and follow me. Nothing, nothing can be held back. Now, remember, Jesus isn't against wealth. Jesus doesn't ask every wealthy person he meets to sell all they have. In fact, Jesus also talks about wanting to give wealth to us so that we can be a blessing in our world. But he is against our wealth being more important than him in our life. Part of carrying our cross is learning to be more than just being religious and good morally and good spiritually. See, so often we use religion as a way to get what we want in life or as a way to ensure we have a good life and are protected from evil. And Jesus says following him is much more than that. It's, some, it's more than getting good things for your life. It's more than just ensuring that God is pleased with you by aligning yourself with his moral law so that, so that nothing bad can happen in your life or so we think. It, it's also this willingness to live in a simple, focused way that is more focused on being like Jesus than what we get in the pleasures and power and influence of this world. Which actually leads us to the second point of what the cross represents. It's the cost of forgiveness. When you have every right to demand justice, it's the cost of forgiveness. As a staff, we've been praying regularly for a friend of Naomi's who doesn't live in the area. She's a good friend and and her family, this friend has been going through just a terribly difficult time. And let me let me just read uh, how Naomi describes uh, what's going on here. She says, in January, one of my best friends found out that her husband of almost seven years was having an affair. Even before the initial layer of shock and pain and betrayal and anger that Molly felt, the pain and devastation trickled down so deep. 
Molly and her husband were both on staff at their church, and the woman he was involved with was also a fellow staff member, and they were all very close friends, living life together. Additionally, Molly and Steve are in the process of adopting their foster daughter that has been with them for over a year. The layers of hurt and the effects of this particular situation are so deep, so, so painful. It's easy to ask ourselves, how would I respond to this type of situation, Naomi goes on to say, uh, or, or to say, I know I would do X, Y, and Z. But the, when the rubber hits the road and you're in, in the midst of the most unimaginable storm, facing something that feels so far from your reality, it becomes real. And you have to make a choice to choose to walk each day in God's grace and abundance in the midst of such pain or choose to live with bitterness, eating away at your soul or sitting with justified anger and in some ways a desire to see justice take place. She goes on to say, watching Molly walk this road with grace and hope clinging to the Lord's plan for her and her daughter's life has blown my mind and quite honestly forced me to take a good hard look at my own relationship with Christ. Molly's on a journey of forgiveness, and I think that can look different each day as she walks this road out. But the most beautiful thing to see is her faith not shaken. She has chosen to cling to her Heavenly Father with every step she takes, navigating this road ahead of her. She's dealing with and facing her grief, but not harnessing bitterness in her heart. It's unclear what their road of reconciliation may look like, but in her honest heart, she wants healing to come to Stephen for him to experience the love of Christ and for him to renew his heart and mind regardless of whether their future is together or apart. And Molly has a beautiful community close to her, supporting her on her journey, and she's able to continue serving and ministering, keep her same job at her church. And God is giving her much evident favor through what is likely the hardest season of her life. Naomi concludes saying this, while it breaks my heart that my best friend is having to walk such a painful road, I'm so thankful for the opportunity to walk alongside her and I'm thankful for the lessons the Lord and Molly are teaching me and nudging me along in my faith. Such an example to choose to live in the freedom of forgiveness and cling to the hope of Christ and to see that it is possible to choose forgiveness even when you have every right to demand justice. Carrying your cross is fighting that fight against bitterness and revenge, against the need to demand justice without mercy by offering the same kind of forbearance, the same kind of forgiveness Jesus offers you to others. And frankly, that is really, really hard to do, isn't it? Closely related to that, the third point of what I think the cross represents is the persevering patience and pain found in the willingness to lay down your life for others. We talked about this a couple weeks ago. Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, to lay down one's life for one's friend. Jesus says it. Jesus does it. And Jesus invites you and I to carry our cross, to be like him in that same kind of strong, powerful, persevering love. Think about this question. How easy is it for you to check out on a friendship that's difficult? It's pretty easy to do sometimes, isn't it? 
when someone promises to be there for you over and over again and consistently disappoints you, when someone criticizes you so regularly that you wonder whether you can do anything good, when someone struggles with addictive behavior and is constantly constantly saying to you, I'm going to be better, but they never are, and they betray you and they hurt you and they regularly fall back into their old ways. It's so easy to check out on friendship sometimes. Jesus had so many opportunities to check out on us. I mean, one of the most intense moments in which he could have checked out on us was the night before the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane. Already knowing what was coming, knowing the one who was betraying him was already on his way with the people to arrest him. And, And Jesus is in such anguish, praying and dealing with the weight of the sin of the world. And Jesus prays, saying, if it be possible, Father, take this cup from me. I think we tend to read that like we're reading a book. We just kind of continue on and just kind of do, you know, 200 words a minute and get through this. But I suspect it took great, great effort for Jesus to get the next words out of his mouth. But not, not my will. Not my will, but, but yours be done. Then again in John 19, 11, Jesus is before Pilate, the Roman governor whose decision held Jesus' fate in the balance. So everybody perceived the situation to be. And John, who was there, records Jesus saying to Pilate, you would have no power over me if it had not been given you from above. You see, often our prayers are first and foremost about escape from the situation when we're facing trouble. Lord, just just get me out of this job. Help me find a new one that's more enjoyable. Our prayers are focused on a return to comfort and ease. Why, why, God, are you letting me be in this tough spot? Why is it so hard? Why don't you just get me out of this? Or we demand justice saying, God, this situation isn't fair. I've not been treated fairly. And the people who treated me that way are having success. And yet I'm having to pay for it. Where is the fairness in this relationship? And if escape and comfort and justice doesn't come like we want, we tend toward frustration with God and life. But if we're going to be like Jesus, we're going to carry our crosses that he gives us, then then God may indeed put us in difficult situations where our radical love, our persevering love, that love of God through us brings far greater beauty than we can imagine. Isn't that, after all, what Jesus did on the cross? I mean, who else but God could take the cross that represented weakness and humiliation and turn it into this beautiful symbol of power? Who else but God could take this cross that meant conviction of your wrongdoing, all the wrongs you were convicted for, displayed humiliatingly for all to see, and turn it into a beautiful symbol of redemption? Who else but God could take this cross that represented the most severe bondage and humiliation and turn it into a beautiful symbol of freedom and beauty restored? See, that's part of the point of what we need to understand. 
when God calls us to count the cost of being a disciple of his by commanding us to take up our cross and follow him, we need to understand it was f- that, that he took up his own cross and pursued all the way through to the end of that cross because of what the text says. The text tells us Jesus did it for the joy of the benefit before him, that Jesus stayed the course of the cross, which leads us to our second question. So what is this benefit? Well, one of the benefits that Jesus talks about is the benefit of eternity. Returning to our first scripture, Mark 8, he says, What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet forfeit their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? And the answer is no one can give enough to save their soul. It's a gift that Jesus gives to us. He pays the price that you and I cannot pay. And why would we forfeit an eternal gift for temporary pleasure today. Matthew, in one of the many times Jesus said this, follows that exact phrase up by saying this. He says, For the Son of Man is going to come in His Father's glory with His angels, and then He will reward each person according to what they have done. So, here's what that's saying. Even though we cannot earn salvation... We can never be good enough to earn heaven on our place, it's on our own. It's a gift from God. There is still a reward to be gained for how well we follow Jesus in this life. Jesus talks about it this way. He says, why don't you store up treasure in heaven for eternity rather than storing up treasure here on earth for yourselves? How well we follow Jesus and love like Jesus loves will be rewarded to each one of us accordingly in eternity. And that thought, I don't know about you, but that thought makes me want to carry, say, yes, I'll carry my cross at once. It makes me want to say, I'm going to restrain my standard of living more and I'm going to give more. It makes me think differently about how I spend my time. It, it makes me think because Jesus believes in me and calls me and asks me to follow him and loves me so fully, it makes me want to have fun seeing how many people we can touch with the good news of Jesus and bring to faith in Jesus that we can see people healed and spiritually and physically and emotionally and economically and in so many ways, but, but it's not just eternity where this benefit is. It's also the benefit of the blessing in this life. See, that story of the rich young ruler we talked about earlier actually goes on. And Jesus, after Jesus says, sell all you have and give to the poor, the guy walks away. And then the disciples, they immediately swell with pride and a sense of excitement. And they go, hey, Jesus, we've given up our houses, our jobs, our normal family life behind to follow you. We've sacrificed so much What do we get? And though Jesus reinforces the eternal reward the disciples will get in sacrificing earthly pleasure, Jesus also says in Luke 18, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in this age and in the age to come, eternal life. You see, carrying your cross, loving like Jesus loves, results in so many friendships and relationships that are far richer, far more abundant than anyone could imagine in this life. So Jesus' question for us today is, are you willing to take up your cross and follow me? Are you willing to live authentically about your weakness and honestly and openly about your sin and weakness with other people and at the same time honestly and openly about God's forgiveness and love of you even while you still struggle with sin 
now in your life? Are you willing to defer your desires for his desires? Are you willing to persevere and willingly choose to stay faithful in, even in difficult relationships and difficult circumstances in order for you to be able to show God's persevering, beautiful love and bring his salvation into those settings? Will you lay down your life, your priorities, your desire for comfort in order to find real life in Jesus and his mission? Will you choose the comfortableness of living a life of care, uh, uncomfortableness of living a life of carrying your cross by demonstrating consistent, sacrificial, humble love? It's such a tough question, isn't it? Whenever I hear that in my more noble moments, I respond to that saying, yeah, sure, let's go for it, God, I'm all in. But, but in my more honest moments, it's an intimidating question isn't it, that feels so beyond all of us, I think. How can anyone say, I will commit to carrying my cross? I mean, think about it. When's the last time you were faced with a moment where you felt like God might be opening up a door for you to talk with somebody about your faith in God and, and, and God's goodness, and, and there was this internal struggle with you within you that... that, that I don't know if I want to bring awkwardness into this situation. And, and so you stayed quiet. You just didn't speak up. In a sense, you were ashamed of Jesus and the gospel or the foolishness of the cross in that moment. So you think, if I can't even do that, then how can I commit to carrying the cross? That's just too intimidating. That I just, I can't make that commitment. I can't do that. Well, the reality is that's what we see Peter struggling with. Peter, the big shot, the the designated leader of the disciples by Jesus. When push come to shove, he denied Jesus three times, one of them while Jesus is looking right at him. Peter, the ashamed one, the one who said he would die for Jesus, the one who made his public cross-carrying declaration, failed more than once. And yet we see Jesus restore him after the resurrection, loving him, once again inviting him, saying, follow me, still believing in him, reaffirming the call upon Peter, telling him, I believe in you. You can become like me. And then Jesus prophesies over Peter saying, yeah, and Peter, one day you will be crucified like me. And me and Peter looks behind and John's following him right there. And and Peter looks at Jesus and says, what about him? Will he, will he be crucified as well? And Jesus answers saying, if, you, if I want him to remain alive till I return, what is that to you? You must follow me. What Jesus is saying is make the commitment and just follow me. Don't worry about the future. Just make the commitment. Let's start down the path. And Jesus, see, Jesus knows this is too big for us. This is too hard of a commitment. It's beyond us. But like he stuck with Peter, he's going to stick with you and me. Even when we fail him, he's going to come back again and say, follow again. Let's just get up and go again. He knows it's a commitment that's too big for us to make and keep our own. But he wants us to make this commitment anyway as a guiding commitment of our lives. He chooses you and says, I love you. I'm committed to you. Come follow me and know the cost and the amazing benefit. 
Don't worry about the future. Don't worry about the future. What is that to you? Just follow me. See what's so beautiful about this. What seems to be the ultimate moment of weakness, the cross, brings the greatest salvation and healing the world has ever known. And when you realize what it really means that God believes in you, that he asks you to follow him, knowing who you are, knowing you're going to fail him, knowing this is too big of a commitment for you to make on your own, that he believes in you that much to call and say, I want you to do it anyway, then taking up your cross while sobering also leaves you with great hope and confidence that God's good plan and power are capable of carrying you through to a place that is so good that you can't even imagine it. So the questions, will you and I like Jesus or will we be like Jesus? Will we settle for a comfortable cross or will we take up the cross as Jesus did and faithfully love and see God save both you and those around you? Would you join me in prayer? Lord, we recognize and stand before you and recognize this, this, is, this is a really big ask of you. Lord, even when we talk about it and say how you want us to make this decision, it still feels like almost this too big of an ask. Lord, I pray that you'd come to each one of us right now and that you'd help us take that step, that we would just follow now. And Lord, whatever we're facing, whether, whether we're facing the temptation towards judgment and bitterness and wanting justice without mercy, whether we're facing the pain that, that Molly is facing or something similar, would you come to us and would you help us by your Spirit have the strength to respond with forgiveness, to respond with love and bring healing to us and other people. Lord, would you just help us this week to love like you love, to be like you today. And Lord, we look forward to the way your Spirit's going to work through us to bring salvation to us, to bring so much more to our lives than we could ever imagine. So Lord, help us surrender all of our ways to you. Would you just continue to worship now? Thank you for listening to this week's sermon audio. If you are loving Quest podcast, let us know on Facebook or Twitter by using the hashtag GoToQuest. For more information about Quest, who we are and what we do, or if you would like to help support Quest financially, please visit us at gotoquest.org. That's G-O-T-O-Quest.org. So